Well, good morning, Branch Church. It is a blessing to be with you this morning as we continue our worship through the hearing and the receiving of God's word this morning. One of my most memorable and embarrassing moments came when I was a senior in high school and my teacher, could you believe it, asked me a follow-up question to something that I had said. It was my government slash economics teacher, first period, our, our school started early. The bell rang at like 7.14 and we drudgingly walked to class. It was cold, we were tired. And the room was shaped very similar to this, kind of like a U-shape, we're all looking at each other. And we were discussing the topic of heroism. And I'm not sure why, but I decided to talk. And I said, well, if Pat Tillman is not a hero, then I don't know who is. Now, for those of you who don't know Pat Tillman, he was a professional football player for the Arizona Cardinals. And he left professional football, somewhere around three and a half million dollars, what I read, and he went and joined the army after the September 11th attacks and the Twin Towers. He ended up dying somehow in the line of service or in duty and being a part of the army. And so that's when I spoke up and I said, if he's not a hero, then I don't know who is. My teacher was like, hold on, hold on, hold on. What do you mean when you say that? And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> he wanted to know what was my reasoning. How, how did I arrive at that conclusion? Why did I make such a statement like that in a room full of other students. And honestly, I don't know why I said it. I never talk in that class. It was first period. I don't know anything about government economics. I'm just trying to kick my way to my future and playing football. That's all I was trying to do. I don't remember saying anything, but I remember how I felt. I was embarrassed. How dare my teacher ask me a follow-up question to what I believed about what I said. Could you believe he did that? Today, we are reading a very familiar passage, John chapter 10, and Jesus is going to call himself the Good Shepherd. Now, if I were to ask you a follow-up question, what does good and good shepherd mean? What is it, what is it makes Jesus the good shepherd and not just a shepherd? It is my hope that when you leave here, that you will be able to answer that question and you would never get caught like I did. Uh, I don't know. Because to understand this is significant. To understand good and good shepherd is to understand good in the good news of Jesus Christ. Today, as we read John chapter 10, the first 21 verses, we're going to learn this message and we're going to unpack it together. That Jesus is the true and good shepherd of God's sheep because he gives life. He gives life, abundant life through his death and his resurrection. All that is significant to our message this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. Now, John chapter 10 is not a new scene. It is a continuation of the scene of chapter nine. You remember last week, right? Chapter nine, a man born blind, blind his whole life. Jesus heals this man. He can see for the first time. And what happens to him? He gets kicked out of the synagogue by the, by the Jewish leadership because he believed in the one Jesus who actually gave him the sight. And so Jesus now is going to speak into that situation. We're still in that scene. And he's going to introduce a parable. The first six verses are a parable. It's a story he tells. And then from that story, he's going to not explain the parable, but pull themes out of the parable that relate to him so they can understand whom they are dealing with. So let's read the first six verses here together and try to understand this parable. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But 
He who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out, and don't miss this, all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, that is the Jewish leadership and those around, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Jesus sets up a contrasting parable. On the one hand, we have thieves and robbers, and on the other hand, we have this, what we'll call the true shepherd. And he tells us at least two things about each. The first thing we learn here about the true shepherd is that when he comes to the sheepfold, he is recognized and he is affirmed as the true shepherd. And so the doorkeeper lets him in. He's not shady. He's not deceitful. He comes in. He doesn't have a fake ID. He doesn't have a fake badge. They know who he is. This is the guy. On the other hand, we have thieves and we have robbers. They don't come in. They break in. Now, the sheepfolds, they could be gates or stone walls. They can be up to six and a half feet high. I'm about 5'10", with my shoes on. Go a little higher, six foot, a little more. You got about six and a half. This is a big stone wall or a stone gate in which they would have to come over and get in. The gatekeeper does not recognize them. They are not welcome. The second thing that the, we learn about the true shepherd here is that he calls all of his sheep by name, he leads them out, goes before them, and they follow him into the pasture. Now, let me try to set the scene for you of what's going on. We are likely not out in an open pasture field, so get rid of that idea. Okay, throw it away. We are probably in the villages of Israel, and each home probably had a few sheep, not enough for each one to hire a shepherd, and so they'd have to probably come together collectively into one sheepfold and hire one shepherd to take care of them, and then there was a gatekeeper who would know who the shepherd was and who would let them in to come take care of the sheep. Now, Near Eastern shepherds are known for being able to stand outside the sheepfold, call their peculiar call, and the sheep will come directly to them. In the West, we might think of shepherds driving them with a sheepdog and kind of being far off. No, these guys actually had a peculiar call and would call them. When I was going into my senior year of high school, I was going to join ASB, and we went on at what's called Catacamp. I don't know what it stands for, something to do with California. And we get there, you do a bunch of silly games and leadership stuff. And one of the games they had us do is they give you a different animal. Got the pigs, horses, donkeys, whatever. And you had to find your group of people. And the only way you could do it was by making the noise of your animal. So that you got the pigs oinking, the horses, he, uh, what are they, neighing, the donkeys hee-hawing. And then eventually we find ourselves, we're laughing, we're giggling, we're having a good time and so forth. The shepherd, when he calls though, it's even greater than that. He's just not making an winking noise or bah, come sheep, come sheep. He calls them each by what? Name. Billy, Brittany, Susie, Chuck, Sean, Kataria, Mari, Dylan, Kelsey, Nancy, Wayne, calls them by name. And what do they do? They come. How beautiful, how intimate is that, that the shepherd calls you by name? I think the closest we could get in maybe understanding that is at the end of the gospel when Jesus calls Mary and he says, Mary, and her eyes are just, oh, Rabbi, teacher, it's really you. 
On the other hand, remember we're in a con contrasting parable. We have the thieves and the robbers. They jump in, they bark noises, they call names, and what do the sheep do? They take off, they flee. We don't recognize you. You're not the true shepherd of us. So what is the point of the parable? Usually parables have kind of one main idea and it's not so much every detail, but it's, it's, it's all of them together. And here's what I think the idea is. The true sheep hear the true voice of the true shepherd and they will flee the voice of the stranger. They will flee the voice of anybody else. Now this begs the question, who are the thieves and robbers and who is the true shepherd here? The people who he's talking to have no idea what he's talking about. They did not understand it. Here's the, I don't, it's not funny, but here's the thing. The thieves and the robbers are probably them. Why? They just kicked a blind man out of the synagogue for believing in Jesus. They just disassociated someone from a worship gathering in Israel disassociated him from the community, and more importantly, disassociated, disassociated him from the eyes of God in their eyes for following Jesus. They thought this guy was a total fool. Was he? Was he a fool for believing and following Jesus? No, because as you'll see, the thieves and robbers, it gets a lot more dangerous as we look at these people. Jesus now is going to continue on and he is going to take a theme out of this parable. Remember, he's not explaining it. Why do I keep saying that? Because if you try to go through every detail in which Jesus says, the analogies start to break down and it gets a little confusing. But Jesus is gonna take themes out of this, two major ones, and apply them to himself. Let's look at the first one. Verse seven. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I have to tell you that last part of that verse again. In the Greek, it reads something like this. I came that, they, that life they may have, and abundantly they may have it. Emphasis on life, emphasis on abundant. I can't help but read it with capital letters. Life, I came to give them. Abundantly, I came that they would have it. So Jesus continues the contrast, but now he inserts himself. So we have Jesus and then we have the thieves and the robbers. What does Jesus say about himself? I am the door of the sheep. What does it mean to say that Jesus is the door? This is what it means. Jesus is the entryway into salvation. He is the entry point into which the sheep come and they will actually find salvation for their souls and they will be rescued from God's judgment. On the other side, we have the thieves and the robbers who come in, they talk, and what do the sheep do? They run, they flee away. Now, who are the thieves and the robbers now as we continue this? It could, it could as well be the religious leadership. Uh, we could be expanding now to include messianic pretenders, messianic wannabes, right? As many as all, Jesus says, people have come before me, thieves and robbers, but the sheep do not listen to them. And then Jesus says, I've came that they may have life and have it abundantly. If we continue with that sheep metaphor, what, is, what does abundant life look like? They follow Jesus and they're well-fed. 
They follow Jesus and they're now content. They're flourishing. They're rescued from bandits. If we put that in outside of the sheep metaphor, it's a picture of a relationship with God. I came that they would have life, a relationship with God now, and they would be resurrected at the end time and have life eternal, life forever. Years ago, I think it was about 2010, I was a youth pastor for about six months, and I led a group to a camp to, I think it was Calvary Chapel, Big Bear, not Big Bear, Calvary Chapel, Green Lake. Does that sound right? Green Valley, thank you. It wasn't a valley, or it wasn't a lake, it was a valley. <laughs> and, and I needed a little break, so I went back up to the, the bunks, and I'm hanging out, I'm laying on the first bunk, and I'm staring up at the second, and I see an inscription. It says, I hate life. Something like that. And I remember I started to think, I started to ponder, did this person really hate life? Do we really hate life? Is it life in which they hate? And I came to a conclusion, I don't think it's life that they hate. I think it's the sin in life that they hate. No one, I don't think, truly hates life, the true good quality of life that God gives because it's beautiful. Who doesn't love a deep, wonderful, peaceful breath? Who doesn't love life full of peace and love and joy and fellowship? and community with people. Those things are amazing. What they hate is the sin that destroys those things. When the sheep come to Jesus, they enter into salvation and they find abundant life. They find a life that is devoid of all those things you hate. All that sin will eventually be erased and gone and moved and will never enter into God's kingdom ever again. Do you want true abundant life? Do you want that true peace and satisfaction and joy and fellowship, it's found in bowing your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and God gives it to his sheep. On the other hand, we have thieves and robbers. And what do they do? They don't come to give life. They come to steal, kill, and destroy. Here's what this means. If you or anyone lead people away from Jesus, the door of salvation, if you lead them anywhere else, you are a murderous, destructive thief to the souls of mankind. Sean, that's a strong statement. It is, but it is true. To lead someone away from the door of salvation is to be a destructive, murderous thief to their soul. We're not as far away from thieves and robbers as you might think. Oh, that was in the past. Heresy, the church dealing with people like that. Do you know that they can show up at our church and be right under your nose and not even know it? About a month ago, we had an individual come to our church and approach Pastor Chuck in expressing their desire to want to teach here. Just met them and expressed a desire to want to teach. Chuck came around the corner and he gives me a heads up. And so I said, okay, and I come in, I see the person, never seen him before. We can usually recognize new people and introduce myself, said hi. And immediately the individual went into their desire to want to teach here and explained the three things they wanted to teach. Hebrew roots, the feast of the Old Testament, and the Holy Spirit. Does that sound bad to you? No. Sounds like right, some kind of messianic Jewishness. They love the roots of the Christian faith. We do have Hebrew roots, right, in the Old Testament, a lot of Hebrew scripture, a lot of Hebrew culture and teachings and thought for sure. And so I said, okay, you know, it's not something you really tell someone right before they're about to speak and teach on a Sunday morning, right, trying to stay focused a little bit. After service, the person approaches me again and, and gives more information. Here's a book. 
and, and wants to teach once a month and so forth. And honestly, I hadn't had a vacation in like 10 months and we were getting ready to take a three-day little thing. And I was just like, oh, I just need a break. And so I was like, I'll take it. I'll deal with it later. And later, uh, I come across in my YouTube feed a video from Ali Beth Stuckey. She is a woman who does a podcast with theology and politics. Uh, does a good job from what I can tell. And she had two gentlemen on, and the topic was Hebrew roots. And my eyes popped. I said, this is exactly what just happened at our church. So now I'm listening to it while I'm working out, trying to get my wife, kids be quiet, whatever, trying to listen to this. Anyway, in the podcast, they share that there's this movement going on where people are going around and into churches and trying to teach about Hebrew roots. It's not centralized. There's no faith statement anywhere that you can look up, but they're coming in and wanting to teach things like you must obey the feast in the Old Testament. Get rid of Christmas, get rid of Easter in the way that you guys celebrate it secularly, right? And you need to celebrate, you must celebrate the feast of the Old Testament. Now that sounds to me like they're trying to bring Jesus plus the Old Testament, Jesus plus the Mosaic law. And that's very, very dangerous to the gospel. Now I haven't spoken with the individual. I haven't asked them what they thought about the gospel, but this is something to be aware of that we have teaching that can show up. And so maybe this is something new you haven't heard of. Be aware of it, be aware of it and get to the heart of the gospel. What is the gospel? And talk to that person if they do bring it up and they wanna talk about those things. Remember, Jesus came to bring abundant life through a new covenant, which we're about to find out more about here. Verse 11, Jesus has now explained how he is the, the door, the entryway to salvation where true life, abundant life is found. And now he's gonna take another theme out of that parable. And the theme is gonna do with who is the true shepherd? Not only is this important, but it's important because it explains why this true shepherd is able to actually give the abundant life. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What does it mean that Jesus is the good, quote, good shepherd? Why does he call himself the good shepherd? I think the answer is found right here in the text. What does he say after he says he's the good shepherd? I lay down my life for the sheep, that's what makes him good because he is the one who sacrifices his life for the benefit, for the safety, for the protection of the sheep. Westerners, we can think of sheep as uh, shepherds as kind of fluffy. Anyone guilty of that? They're fluffy, they're shiny, they're clean. They carry fluffy lambs all day and just kiss them, right? And it's just really nice. Shepherds are a little more dirty. Shepherding is tough, it is tiring. And you have to protect them, fight for them because wolves will come and they will run off. It's a lot of work to take care of sheep. Jesus is that good shepherd who not only does all that, but actually sacrifices his life so the sheep can actually live. I know you know this, but by God's grace, Lord, let it sink in. Jesus is the good, noble, worthy, excellent shepherd because his sheep are in mortal danger and he gives himself to that danger to be slain so that they could be saved and rescued. Do we have a good shepherd? Can I get a witness? Amen. Did Jesus believe he was gonna die? It's very clear here. Don't let anyone show up and tell you that the historical Jesus didn't think this. Or did, did Jesus really think in his mind? He, no, it's very clear here. The church didn't make this up. The church just reports. What kind of message would that be? They're going around telling everybody, we got this dying king, you wanna join in? It's like, that doesn't even make sense, right? Only God can create a true story like that. 
Remember, we're contrasting these two. That's the good shepherd. On the other hand, we have the thieves and the robbers, which Jesus now changes into the hired hand. Remember, he's taking themes out. Verse 12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. On the other hand, towards away from the good shepherd, you have the hired hand who is all about self-preservation. I don't care about the sheep. I'm here for a paycheck. And if they're in trouble and I'm in trouble, well, they're going to lose because I'm out of here. And they take off and the wolf comes in and scatters them, ravages them, destroys them. Who are these hired hands? We don't know. They could be the Jewish leadership messianic wannabes. This could be just a picture that Jesus pulls out to contrast with himself, me and everybody else. How great of a shepherd do we have? Jesus continues in verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus reiterates again that he is the good shepherd. And this time he adds something between the sheep and the shepherd, they know each other. There is a knowledge. There is a fellowship. For us, there is an experiential knowledge by faith that happens with our shepherd. Jesus is not some far-off shepherd. He's not someone who sends the sheepdog to just run you back into the fold. He is someone who actually shepherds the sheep. He shepherds you. If he can call you by name, he can shepherd you by name. If he calls you by name, he can lead you by name and take care of you. And I think that's what he does. Just as him and the father know one another, so we know Jesus. Not the same level of intimate depth of knowledge, right? They're, they're eternal, they're God. But for us, I think, I think this may be where it's going. So I'm going on a leap here. Just as they know each other and that can't be broken, same with the sheep and the shepherd. We know each other and that cannot be broken. Verse 16, he says, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus makes clear there's other sheep. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. He's talking about the Gentiles. Outside of that Jewish Judaism flock, there's Gentiles. There's people scattered across the world. And I'm going to go get them. I'm going to save them, and I'm going to bring them together, one flock, one shepherd. Is it not mind-blowing that before you were born, Jesus said this, before the earth was created, God had this in his heart to go and to get his sheep and to rescue them from the danger and to call you by name. Go with me to Ezekiel 34 verse 11. God talks about this in the Old Testament. It is a beautiful picture. You have to read it with me. Ezekiel 34 verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Who is searching for the sheep? God is. Are you searching out God? No. Sometimes I think there's this picture of God's just waiting. He's just waiting for you. It's no, God is the one who's coming after you. He seeks you. He calls you. He leads you. He rescues you. He works in you to will and to do good. He sanctifies you. Now there's a response by faith in which he works within us, but God is the great, as Pastor Chuck says, the great activator, initiator, right? Did I say that right? 
Verse 12, as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Name a region in the world. Name a location. Name a place where there's bad and hard things. Jesus goes and he gets his sheep and he calls them by name and he brings them home. Verse 13, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. We can't stop. We have to keep going. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Jesus makes very clear he has other sheep. God has spoken about it and he has long in his heart eternally made this possible to go out and to get them and to bring them back. How amazing is it that God has called you by name, opened your eyes. You are here because of God's grace. You understand the gospel because of his grace. You believe he actually lived, died and rose because of God's grace. Do we have a good shepherd? To understand good and good shepherd is to understand good in the good news of Jesus Christ. What makes them good? The gospel, the gospel, the eternal gospel, which he wrote from himself for us. Praise God, he's so great. Do you ever lose things? I don't know if anyone, money in the couch? Maybe not anymore. How about stuff in your seat when you're driving? Oh, it's a terrible hole. Perfect size to drop, but to never get your hand all the way down. For us, it's the pacifier. I kid you not, I can hold my son, it's happened, at least once, if not twice. The pacifier falls right in front of me and bounces, and I lose it. I know it couldn't have gone far. There's a radius in which it has to be, and I'm on my hands and knees, and I cannot find it. Parents, any of you done this? Yes, it's, it's a crazy, it needs GPS. If, if they would do it on Shark Tank, I would buy it. <laughs> Along with the other 50 pacifiers that we have to keep buying, because we, right, it's crazy. Where did it go? God does not lose stuff. Things may become lost, but he seeks and he finds that which is lost and he saves his sheep. Praise God that he has saved you and opened your eyes this morning. And if you are not a believer in Jesus, but you hear the voice of the shepherd Jesus calling you, believe, believe, respond and believe. Verse 17, for this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Two things stand out in this verse. He talks about the reason why the father loves him. I struggle with this a bit. Is this why the father loves him? Just because he does this? But what if he didn't do it? Then would it be conditional? And I'm racking my head, right? I found a guy, Hoskins. He, he gives a really good quote, and I'm gonna summarize it for you. He talks about the context of this love. The context is not an eternal relationship necessarily here. The context is in the love, the saving aspect of the world in which the father and the son are working out. So it seems to be right. this love is, is based on this commitment, this loyalty to Jesus because of what he's going to do to save the world. That was the best way I was able to understand it. And the second thing interesting about verse 17, Jesus says, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. What's he talking about? 
Resurrection. This is incredible. Did Jesus believe he would die for the sins of the world and resurrect from the dead? You better believe it. You, you hear of any historical Jesus that doesn't believe this or didn't really think this, throw it out the window. Jesus says it right here. The church did not make it up. And you know what's even, it's not crazy, but on top of that, what's amazing? Jesus says that I will take it up again. Who raised Jesus from the dead? Well, I got Acts says the father does. Uh, and then I got John at least two places, this one and earlier when Jesus says, destroy the temple and I will raise it again in three days. And John gives a parenthesis. Oh yeah, he's talking about his body, right? The resurrection. But Jesus says he does it. This is amazing. This is the triune God at work. We see it in creation, the father and the son creating, the spirit giving life. We see it in redemption. We see it in resurrection. There's a verse even in Romans that seems to be understood possibly as the Holy Spirit raising him from the dead. So there is a triune work of God in the work that he does. Remember, the, what the Father does, Jesus does. And we have been learning that since chapter five very clearly. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, speaking of his life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Is Jesus a victim of circumstance? Colin Cruz gives a great quote in his commentary on John. Jesus is not a victim of circumstance. He is in control of his destiny. Nobody takes his life when he wants to lay it down. That's when he does it. When he wants to take it up, that's when he does it. Why? Because the father has commanded him and given him authority to do this. So what do we see here in verse 18? We see the authoritative plan of God working itself out. This is the sovereignty of God in action, bringing about his plan even amongst men and the decisions that they are allowed to make and the evil that they are allowed to do. Now, this should result in hallelujah chorus. Yes. Wow, good shepherd. Thank you, Lord. You saved me. You searched me. You rescued me. This should be clicking with Ezekiel 34. Holy cow, this is, this is amazing. But this is not the response they get. Last uh, two Saturdays ago, we had a parenting class. And afterwards, we got to hear their parents talk, and it was really fun. And one of the stories that started talking about was how when parents make breakfast or a meal for their children, put a lot of love and a lot of time, you're excited, they're going to like this, it's healthy, it's good, and you put it before them and they go, I don't want this. I don't want, I don't like this. And you're like, you got to be kidding me. You know how much love and, and, and compassion and just genuine I like you went into this and you're just going to dismiss it? You like this. You had it like three days ago. Actually, and one of you actually requested this. So what are you doing vocally speaking up against this? Unbelievable, right? And, and you expect this different reaction. I can only imagine God's heart. Well, now we get this kind of reaction here that's mixed and it's like, guys, way to kill the mood. Verse 19, there was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said this, listen to the statement. This is strong. He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Sometimes if we don't want to maybe share the gospel with people because they might think we're weird or might not get it, might call us names. Jesus got called names too. For, the, for what it's worth, let that be comforting. It's going to happen. Fine. We love the people and we care enough to still share. They thought Jesus was out of his mind. You're, you're mad. You might as well be in the streets just screaming and, and everybody just ignore you. 
But others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Guys, let's reevaluate this, right? Can a demon open the eyes of the blind, right? If it doesn't smell like a duck, if it doesn't walk like a duck, if it doesn't talk like a duck, guys, I'm pretty sure it's not a duck. I don't think he's demon, guys. You're killing me here. Well, whatever the opinions are, here's the truth. Jesus is the true and good shepherd of God's people because he gives abundant life through his death and his resurrection. How do we respond to this? At least two ways. Firstly, we want to believe. We want to believe upon Jesus. Bow our knees to him and trust in his saving, gracious death on our behalf. Confessing our sins and trusting him to take them all away and to give us the abundant life. For those of you who do believe, you want to meditate on this. Have you thought about Jesus as the good shepherd? Can you think of a better metaphor than shepherd? Lots of metaphors for God. And we need all the ones he has given us. Shepherd is really tough to kind of beat. It incorporates everything from nurse to firefighter to warrior. I mean, it just has so much in there. Have you really sought and thought, sat and thought about Jesus as your shepherd? All that that is. He calls you by name. He goes before you. He has chased you down and gone after you. This is amazing stuff. What does that do when you think of that? You realize how loved you are, how cared for you are. That gives you security. That gives you stability. In a world where everybody, where there's so much instability with identity and emotion, here is your stability. Here is your security in your shepherd. And if he's shepherd, what does that make you? Sheep. And as a sheep, what do you know? I need a lot of help. Can't do anything. God, I need your help. And then you have baby sheep, and it's like, God, I really need your help now. Really need your help. Think about that. Meditate on that. It'll ground you in his gracious love and empower you and remind you to keep walking with him, our shepherd. Secondly, flee competing voices. There are voices of thieves and robbers. There are voices of those who would lead you astray. If they are not of Jesus, you need to hit the delete button and flush it down the toilet. See you later. It's one thing to look at a competing voice because you're analyzing it and you want to understand it better so you can tell them truth. And it's another if you're like really being swayed by it or interested in it and it's, no, you need to get rid of it. Get rid of it and get back to the word. God's word is enough to equip you for the good works which God has called you to do. Amen.